Welcome to the second series of the podcast, Rewired. Much has happened since series one in the debate around a universal basic income grant in South Africa. In this series, we unpack some of the debates that have developed. We look at the politics behind the scenes, the numbers that people are arguing about, and we invite captains of industry, intellectuals, academics, and activists to put forward the ideas why the basic income grant is the one policy that we need to take us from where we are as a country to where we need to be. Join me, Isabel Fry, on Rewired, the podcast of choice that allows you to be part of the conversation on a basic income grant. Hello, I'm Isabel Fry, and this is the first episode of the second series of Rewired, which is a podcast about South Africa's future, how we move from where we are to where we want to be. Today, we are incredibly honored to have as guests in the studio, Portia Darby and Derek Thomas. Our guests today are going to be looking at the concept of a basic income grant and why it might just be the solutions that we're looking at to take us down the road towards economic and social and political recovery in South Africa. Portia, welcome. And it's really great to have you with us. I know that um, you're in quite a busy phase of your life as the chief executive of Transnet. I was really interested to see that you you started your career at NEEP. And I like the fact that you were integral to the quantification of the reconstruction and development program. And I think that really has an affinity for the topic that we're talking about today. And Derek, it's lovely to have you. It's nice to have met you. You are the co-founder of Letzema Holdings, which, as we were discussing beforehand, has about a quarter of a century of experience behind it. Welcome. Portia, before we start talking about and unpacking the concept of a basic income grant, won't you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, I know that you're a name that many people know, but the person behind that, what makes you tick? What do you enjoy doing? And um, tell me a bit about being a stoic. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Isabel. I'm an eldest of uh, five, uh, a daughter of a teacher. My father used to be a teacher. They met at uh, training college uh, teaching and he finally became in, he worked at the station. And I keep on saying is that what is the chance of that? That uh, at this point in my life, I would be the CEO of Transnet. I used to do the ticket booking um, at the station in Marisburg. But the most interesting thing about my dad and why I go there is that when I got to university for my first year, he paid for first year by his winnings at the horses. I have never been able to bet on anything. I have no clue how it works. None of my sisters and my brother um, are able to tell me how to do it because none of us learned. And the whole of first year, you know, in first year university, there's that day which you have to pay the damn fees. I would be sitting somewhere on the road because that was before cell phones, right? I'd be sitting somewhere on the road because we had agreed that I would wait there and he would come screeching by. There's the money and I run in and go and pay. So I'm working class um, in my ethic, in my soul and in everything that I am. I am completely of that class uh, and have always felt deeply entrenched in that. So it's been a privilege uh, for me that I've been able to work all my life uh, in the space where I have never lost connection with that. Thank you. My parents were both teachers as well, mm. but mm. my dad then became a priest. Mm. We didn't bet, unfortunately. I think that would have been a lot easier for university rather than uh, bank loans. But um, I really like that. And thanks for sharing that with us. I think the um, question of compass and integrity mm. is something which is really important uh, for us to know. Thank mm. you. And Derek, so, what about you? So I'm truly surprised. I am... Um, the son of a teacher as well. I, in fact, I come from a family of educators. My sister, I have one, is the Dean of Education at the University of Johannesburg, and she started her career as a, as a teacher. I guess there are two compasses or two cardinal points to my existence, and they derive from my dad having lost my mom when I was seven years old to cancer. Um, and those two are one education, an absolute love of it, 
I guess I spent far too much time as, at university as a consequence of that. But the second is that my dad was both the church and the school treasurer. Now, this predates the time, I guess, perhaps we couldn't afford it, safes. So there was always money in the house that didn't belong to us. And I don't know, through a process of mental osmosis, we just understood that that money was sacred, belonged to somebody else, and was not to be touched for whatever reason. And I, so I think I'm comprised of that stewardship dimension and then the love of education dimension. Thank you. I think the idea of stewardship is so important because it's about holding on behalf of others and letting that grow and seeing how it can be applied, which really is what leadership um, is about. And in our own spheres, as we grow older, uh, that leadership is important and also passing on to younger generations. So thank you for that. And it's great to see that uh, education is the hallmark. And that's why the three of us are here, I think. So I want to move on to the discussion that we have, the basic income grant. For our listeners, just to say that the uh, definition that we use of a basic income grant is an unconditional monthly payment that goes to people because of their human dignity, really. It's, it's an affirmation of their belonging to our country. And it's also about meeting basic needs. But more than that, it's about enabling people to become part of an economy, um, to, to multiply the efforts that they and the initiatives that they're employing every day. And also to ensure that our economy keeps on flowing in a way that currently it's not. The idea has many proponents, but it also has many naysayers. And today's podcast is about exploring some of the thinking um, of people who might not be fully committed, but are partial to understanding um, and, and sharing the vision they have for how an intervention such as a basic income grant could add to the solutions that we need for our country. But the concept of a basic income grant has not just got an economic leg. It's also got an aspect of social justice. And I, before we go into the technicalities of people's positions around a basic income grant, I'd just like to ask both you, Portia, and you, Derek, your early political awakenings, your embracing of social justice. How did that happen? Derek? Sure. So I had already referenced the fact that my father was a teacher and a Deputy headmaster, in fact. So he was a man of some authority in the community. And it was interesting when my sister went to teacher's training college, she got arrested. She got arrested by mistake. She happened to share the name Nadine with an activist from the community. So the old apartheid uh, police, in all their intellectual glory, arrested the wrong person. But I had never seen my father as emasculated as he was in the face of the injustice that our family at a very parochial level uh, experienced in, I think she was, a, she was kept in detention for about a week. That meant no, no lawyers, no legal representation, an inability to take food to her, and just not knowing when she would come out. I was, a, I was in my early teens at the time. It must have been about 1985 during the state of, uh, of, of emergency uh, during Bertha's regime. And just seeing a man completely stripped of his dignity and his ability to have agency made me realize that as a country, we were wanting and I didn't have any of the intellectual concepts that perhaps I have as an adult today about justice, about representation, all the niceties that we, we, we speak about intellectually. I just knew it was wrong. It was unfair and it was about power. Yeah. Portia. My dad was a mixed race and my mom is Zulu. And so this is why I insist that I'm Zulu uh, as, as a person, because that's how I grew up. Uh, and far, my dad being mixed race, obviously, at the time when um, he was not at all in any fashion raised by his father, so grew up. So as a family, we were definitely uh, Zulu. So I raised this because he obviously looked different to everybody else. So for me, um, you know, as a, as a family growing up, I mean, you've got no uh, real idea about what's happening, save for the fact that um, my mother as a teacher uh, always left home really early because uh, as an African, she taught 
way out of the countryside in Marisburg. Her schools were never in any convenient spot. And we were bused to town. Um, so there's that. And then also we were allowed to play in the surrounding schools for a while. And then eventually normality had to set in and we had to go to school where, where we got bus. So that's the first uh, point. Uh, around 1985, uh, 86, uh, probably the hubris at the height. And I didn't know that. I mean, I was just a school kid and I wasn't that uh, connected other than having family. Sure, you go to, you belong to a broader family and you know, that there are people that people don't talk about quiet and it's in hushed tones that there's uh, but you don't know what's happening and we were forced out of uh, where we lived which was in Edendale in Kalusa to be actually exact about where we lived we had to move because that was the last push of forced removals out of Kalusa which is our childhood this is what we know and the friends that we know and you had to move into woodlands into a community where we were always alien, into a community where we spoke Zulu and everybody spoke English. And so you have to deal with uh, quite seriously disparaging words and people say, say to you. So that for me is, is the, the first moment because until then, I mean, you had to deal with racism, petty racism in school, right? Because you've got, uh, if you go to colored people, there are those who've got straight hair, green eyes, and then there's the rest of us who are on the other side of the spectrum. And dare be clever or faster and the rest and like and then you called a kaffir I mean I've always said the only people who've ever called me a kaffir two incidents was one white man and um, it was always in the colored community so that colorism uh, thing so I think for me there was always just a sense that something is odd something doesn't make sense um, when I was uh, growing up so I have no in the same there was no theoretical reference it's just that something's not there and the point about things being fair and not fair, I think, is really critical of where we are as a country. I mean, we know that South Africa is the most unequal country in the world. We know that more than 56% of people live below the upper bound poverty line of 1,500 rand approximately. But more startling is that one in four, 25% of South Africans live below the starvation line. And that's continuing to deepen and the crisis continues with unemployment at 44%. Uh, youth unemployment between 15 to 24 years old is 78%. Equally long-term unemployment, which is the mark really for whether or not pe unemployed people will get back into the economy, is just under 80%. So the crisis that we have is deep and some of it is legacy, some of it's inherited from the incredibly skewed economy and society that we had that both of you experienced growing up at the real hard part of it. The question that we will discuss today is really what we can be doing moving forward. So Portia, you talked about the dysfunction of the society that you grew up in. I've heard you saying really boldly, but also what I loved about the way that you said it in the meeting, that the Zoom meeting, this is the first time I meet you, that we were in, as a matter of fact, that of course a basic income grant is necessary. And you didn't put any conditions or any kind of points of concern into that statement. Now, you have a background in economics. Why do you speak so boldly about a basic income grant in the face of such opposition? Not necessarily just opposition, but policy lethargy. Why do you think it is an important policy to explore? Um, and do you think it's something we need to be implementing? I just think it's common sense. I'm, I'm afraid. I mean, so when you, you, the numbers that you were putting, so I, I always say to my kids is that it doesn't matter. It's my money. Uh, but you need to worry about a loaf of bread because you've got no money uh, and you've got to be asking for it so that there's always a, con a connectedness and a consciousness about the cost of things. So I, I put together just a basket of really basic and I haven't even gone to protein or anything like that because unfortunately when you're poor, you're also sentenced to having the poorest nutrition of all. So you're just, the burden of poverty is, is alarming. So if you're already saying 56% of the population is below 1,500, right? 
And just basic loaf of bread every day, liter of milk every day, um, a couple of tins of uh, fish, um, samp and beans, uh, mealy meal for a month, and also the ubiquitous uh, five liter oil that every single African household must have. That's over seven, it's around 740 rand, right? At one thousand five, you haven't done anything. You're just trying to keep body and soul together. So for me, it it just it's it's obvious, man. Uh, you can't have the level of poverty that we have, and then also over and above that, the high unemployment, and we don't really have a social system. Uh, no social grants. If you have no disability and you're young, nothing's going to support you. If you're not old, over sixty-five, nothing's going to support. What the hell is supposed to happen? You're supposed to stay alive, isn't it? So for me, it's. It's like, it's common sense. I don't even, I don't even understand why it's a debate. It even frustrates me that much more because in a country which is supposedly very religious, you have the most religious people being dead set against it. And it's some Calvinist notion that uh, this is some sort of punishment uh, for your laziness and your refusal to work. So I I, I have, I mean, I, before you even get to the intellectual, for me, the intellectual bits and bobs are about how much, you know, how do you distribute, who gets it and who doesn't get it. But even there, too, I, I hold what is a pretty radical view of, of what you do especially because of the corruption that we've had in administration in South Africa. So uh, for me, it's, well, I, just, I, I don't even, I mean, it's just like it's, it's the most logical thing on earth to do. Implement a basic income grant. Basically. Derek, you wrote a chapter for a book, Better Choices, Ensuring South Africa's Future. In your view, if we don't implement a basic income grant... Um, as many people would, would have us just continue as we are. What are some of the likely scenarios you think will happen for, uh, in South Africa in the next five, 10 years? I think we face an existential crisis. I think our democracy, the very thing we hold dear, is at risk. I think the constitutional provisions that uh, people died for and the constitutional promises that people gave their lives for is at risk. Our republic stands in front of a tinderbox. That can't be right. There was a famous politician back in the day who said, I didn't struggle to be poor. Mm-hmm. I think people didn't struggle to see the level of indignity and poverty that we're experiencing today and that the creation uh, in 1994 of this new republic be put at such risk through greed, avarice, incompetence, and a lack of imagination. That's the real criminality here. So how do I see this unfolding? Well, quite frankly, the republic will burn unless we do something imaginative and something fair-minded. It's inconceivable that some people can live the California lifestyle and others can't afford to put food on the table for starving children. That makes no sense to me. There is no dignity in enjoying a ridiculous lifestyle at the same time that other people are in the throes of poverty. Now, unless we get our collective imagination around this, there will be no country, and none of us will be safe. You cannot build walls big enough to keep yourself safe from the impending doom, and neither should you. We should be in this as a collective, and we should find solutions that are fair to all. The private sector, and in fact the whole of the country, will suffer from a malaise of imagination unless we resolve this. In other words, what we will have is capital flight as people come to the view that you can't, you can't on a risk-adjusted, on a systemic risk-adjusted basis, have sustainable profit-generating activity in the country. And ultimately, the whole thing will reach an inflection point where it falls off a cliff. That's stark, Um, but I don't see any other future apart from the one that you describe, unless we do intervene. The point that you made um, just about the, the whole malaise in the economy is something that we definitely are seeing. And the denialism that we come across in with policymakers is something which I find very disappointing, given the collective struggles that we had. And the fact that our constitution is 
Um, everyone calls it arguably the most progressive constitution in the world, but you can't eat the constitution mm. and the constitution that guarantees, it literally guarantees sufficient food and water as well as social security. But all that people use it for is to fight political battles. But I think Portia, as the chief, the group chief executive of Transnet, you command an extremely critical position and you've also got immediate oversight of levers of state intervention. Now, a big is clearly not a silver bullet in and of itself, but it requires state involvement uh, and it should really be a catalyst for a number of other key micro-interventions that the state would need to implement to drive the economic stimulus and the reimagination of the world of work. What are some of these other interventions? Because we don't want to say that with a basic income grant, everything would change overnight. What do you think are new departures that we need to be doing or going back to things that were working and we haven't taken forward? I, I've just, um, I, I'm reading uh, Thomas Piketty's new book and actually quite useful little short articles about a series of uh, issues, very Europe-based, very France in particular, but also covers the world now and again. He's got a very short article in there about the basic income grant in India um, that they've introduced. And I completely agree that a basic income grant is one of a package of things that you're supposed to do as the government, including policies for that matter. Um, frankly, we've been appalling in investing in education, but the creative uh, sectors as well, because there's a lot of work to be had in, in those spaces as well. So for me, the focus on education and in the focus on education is to move people away from I need a job to how I create jobs. And it's not in the sense of entrepreneurship because not everybody's an entrepreneur. I started my own business. I can tell you it's hard, that thing. And so you, you do want to make sure though that in the education, there's a lot more skills which you, you give people so that even if I can't get a job in the formal economy, and I actually think for me, a long overdue discussion in South Africa is about the informal sector, which we undercount. And I would argue that if you counted that sector right, your employment numbers would be entirely different because that sector looks after a heck of a lot of people, actually, um, quite sustainably for that matter. So the question that we should be asking is, how do you support that sector to achieve greater vibrancy, I think? So for me, education, uh, you have to invest in health um, and proper infrastructure. So I've been also reflecting a lot uh, more just about myself um, and my thinking when I was young, uh, working uh, on the RDP and the, the quantification of it, as a civil servant, I always used to say that one of the greatest weaknesses of walking in into a government department position is that nobody gave us script notes, though. This is where we were. This is where we were going, right? Because that would have given us at least a sense of what next uh, and to understand why they had done whatever and walked away from it, what had been the challenges uh, as well. So uh, for me, the, the issue uh, when I reflect on RDP is that we didn't set up a system for how we would systematically redistribute. Because if you recall, and you would record it better, Derek, is there was that huge growth uh, debate uh, that created it. Do we go for growth first and redistribution? And obviously growth won. In the process, we widened inequality because we never dealt with the original sin, frankly, of apartheid, which was we should have redistributed first. Uh, and so what we then got caught in, and I think that's what happens. I mean, I have some sympathy of being a civil servant at the end of the day, is that we're caught still in that uh, profound fear which was planted then, was that if you redistribute, oh, there'd be massive capital, capital flight from South Africa, right? But the point that Derek makes, I mean, I don't think that we need to convince ourselves last year with the looting in KZN. What was that about? I mean, those people are my people. I grew up with those people and I know everybody. Uh, it's, we're not like that, but that's how we behaved. Uh, and if we behave like that, it is a ticking time bomb that you need to deal with the fact that people are tired of watching the others doing very well and there's the rest of us in, in poverty. So for me, I think we cannot continue uh, the lie of saying is that Trickle down economics, which is, you know, will the things will eventually arrive. They, they're not arriving. 20 years later, I can assure you from when we started to, nothing like that has happened. So if you do not have 
a courageous government, which is just going to take a deep breath and understand that actually it's not a choice between capital flight and growth. It's a choice between nothing, which is the situation that we're fighting, and actually a conscious process for ensuring that the allocation of resources go to the neediest um, in society and you deal with those uh, the, those issues. So for me, it's like if you're not dealing with education, health, housing, a much more active process to build house, social housing, which is available at a decent rent, which is looked after by the system as well. All of that stuff, if you don't have that, a basic income grant, as I was saying, in fact, by the way, I should add public transport, because for many working poor, because that's why we end up having working poor people, anything up to 40% of your salary goes towards transport. I've already said you've got 734 at the very least, that's before protein in your diet or vegetables for that matter. You then have to add uh, about 40% of your salary going to transport. You have a mess. So, so for me, if we do not put our best brains, because these are hard, hard problems to deal with, but I don't, I think it's best brains and actually the most courageous because you have to have courage uh, to walk in this direction and hold the line because in three, four years, I promise you it will pay back. Thank you. One of the puzzles for me is why our uh, government fails to see that social security could be the bedrock for all other programs. Uh, a lot of people see it as just being an intervention, a humanitarian crisis. But Portia, as you said, for working age people between 18 and 59 who are unemployed, there is no mm. um, programmatic intervention. We're having current debates about the 350 grant, which in and of itself is far too small, but it is something. And we've seen the documentation of how people have used this to springboard new livelihoods. But Derek, the research paper talks about there being two shock stimuli to the economy. So the basic income grant, but also a very determined focus on employment, whether that's recognizing the informal activities that are happening and recognizing that that we, we need to show the demand and, and scale the demand through, for instance, a basic income grant, but also public employment. Now, as someone who's worked in various parts of the state uh, in your life, what do you see as being critical components to a catalytic state employment institution, one that is permanent and that draws people into employment and into the economy? That's a great question. So I think the the big challenge in South Africa, I just want to create a bit of context here, is is our mineral wealth, the very thing that gives us riches, denudes us of imagination and a sense of active imagination. So how can we imagine ourselves into a new future? And, and our mineral wealth will never be able to generate the kind of employment we need to resolve this existential crisis we face. But on the one hand, we need to ensure that ESCOM, Transnet, and SARS, these, the stroika that generates the wealth and then gives us an ability to redistribute it is well run by honest and competent people. And then we can take that money and translate it into a new uh, uh, opportunity set. Now, as it pertains to employment, what you need always is to recognize that every fiscal rand is sacred. It's almost out of a Monty Python skit, if you remember. I won't, I won't do the exact one, of course. <laughs> Come on. It's a bit naughty. Um, but that's, so don't waste money. Spend it wisely. Spend it with imagination. As it relates specifically to employment, what I think we need to also recognize is that the state's institutional capability has hemorrhaged precipitously over the last 10 years. Now, if you were asking me how I would resolve this thing, I would say the state acts as a guarantor and as a funder, but implementation is partnered with the private sector. By the way, I think that uh, relates to industrial finance as well. The state shouldn't be playing at the retail level. 
it should always recognize the battery limits of its capability and its strategic positioning and involve the private sector in partnership. And I would do the same for employment creation. If indeed the model is to proceed with an employment generating institution, make sure that you limit the extent of the state's involvement. Then what do you do as a mandate? Well, look at examples where countries have resolved unemployment through public works programs. Probably the New Deal is the most obvious in economic history. Get them to build, get unemployed people employed on public service or public works mandates, build infrastructure, rehabilitate our rail. So offer Porsche labor outside of her enterprise's ability to pay for it, for example, to rehabilitate priority areas that perhaps she can't afford just now, given the state of her balance sheet, and so forth and so on. The same deal with the rate at ESCOM, with our water infrastructure, and so forth and so on. And of course, the whole green uh, transitioning that we need to do. We know that if we are going to be transitioning through a just transition, that there are new jobs that can and should be created um, and and maintained going forward. So I think that we... Can I just... Yeah, sorry, Isabel. I'm extremely skeptical. Let me not lie to you. Um, Solar panels are being manufactured by the factory of the world in China. The Americans are looking to do uh, additional investment in that area, right? So whenever I hear people saying they are green manufacturing jobs, I sit there and I think, "Mm, where? Uh, we were working in the, before I started in Transnet uh, at Ubu on the auto sector, um, I was at the IDC because, um, which is uh, sometimes not a very well-known fact, is that actually we got really great quality rates in South Africa. And so they were doing this work and arrived at the fact that we could actually do a new, the motor for an EV, for an electric vehicle, the whole motor. Uh, did some work and uh, went to one of the OEMs, Europe-based, I won't say which one, and said we'd like uh, to see whether we could industrialize the electric motor, the permanent uh, and electric for an EV. The response was, and what will the German workers do? I'm not telling you a story that I read in a book. Okay. So whenever people talk about this and say there will be jobs, I keep on thinking, my God, I mean, if people were basing their convos on reality, number one, number two, in the case of South Africa, I've been saying to everybody is that you cannot talk just transition and you do not talk about people. One, number two, and you do not talk about Mpumalanga as the core investment place, right? Because everybody's talking about green hydrogen, this and that, and nobody goes to deal with the fact that the poor people, who the people who lose their jobs, are in Mpumalanga who are doing both the mining as well as the ones who work on coal-fired power stations and whatever associated activity, or eking out a living as a result of that sector being uh, there. So I do think that even that, the issue of green jobs, requires a much more honest conversation than we actually are having, because most of the R&D money and the best manufacturing jobs are not going to come to the developed world. They're going to stay in the developed world. So the question we should be asking ourselves is if we are responsible for decarbonizing the world because we're suddenly expected to decarbonize um, at a time when in our case of South Africa the greater problem right is the energy dependence of uh, a manufacturing strategy if you're going to actually leverage off the fact that you've got this wonderful wealth in fact not just in South Africa on our entire continent if we leverage How are we going to do that? Because for me, answering that question without getting money for free and grants because they think that we're always looking for hands out is what is the industrial strategy that enables us in Africa to benefit from beneficiation of the products that we have? I think that you have thrown out a much greater challenge and that really goes to looking at the trajectories and choices that we make going forward. Because despite the WTO commitments, other countries, established countries, northern countries do exercise protectionism. Those very things that we're told that we're not allowed to do. So recognizing that, saying we don't want to muscle in on existing jobs, but creating new jobs and looking, I think, at the continent. I mean, Africa Free Trade Agreement having coming to place, how is it that we position ourselves there? And the idea of 
what the livelihoods are of people such as in Pumalanga where the coal mines close, um, something which is critical. And it goes to the question of political will. We know that these problems are not new. We know that they are evident if you drive down the road, but also if you look at the plans, if you look at the National Development Plan from which we um, are departing on, on many fronts. So to either of you, the question of political will, in fact, Derek, we'll start with you. How does leadership avoid engaging on poverty? Although every speech starts with the triple burdens that we face of poverty, inequality, and unemployment, where is the prioritization of the best minds linked to the, the finance, either through development finance institutions or through the fiscus and looking at monetary policy, unlocking some of the kind of balance sheets that exist um, of state resources? Why is it not our number one priority? So let's just be clear. I think our political elite should hang their heads in shame. Lack of imagination, lack of follow-through. And, and it's just not good enough. We're a poor country. We're an unequal country. We're a country born in an optimistic moment less than a generation ago. It should be all minds and all hands on deck to resolve this issue. Those numbers you quoted at the beginning are not only existential. They, they're just plain down horrible. Horrid. Now, why don't we do it? I suspect, I think we lack imagination. And I think we lack a commitment to imagining a new South Africa. And we're able to rest on a table constructed out of an old colonial and apartheid economy. Our strength is our weakness. Our mineral um, endowment has created an ability to de-link ourselves or a portion of our republic and our commercial activity from the reality all South Africans or the average South African experiences. What that means is you can still have a functioning part of the economy with people making super profits and living really good lives without thinking about the other. And until we can intertwine those two systems, and you see what happens when, in fact, those come into conflict with each other, until we can intertwine those two system systematically, we're always going to have this delinking of the imagination and the commitment to the, the vast majority of South Africans and improving their livelihoods. It's just too easy. Thank you. Portia, we are looking towards 2024 and the next national and provincial elections. And starting with December, we have um, leadership uh, conference of the ruling party. To an extent, one would think that a basic income grant could become an easy political football for people to capture in the imagination. Now, to invert that image back to my original question, how does one harness the, the necessary political will to make this tackling poverty um, and most obviously starting with a basic income grant? How do we make that everybody's business with the understanding that it needs to come from the top down? So I've been reflecting a lot around um, where to from now, right, from here. I do think that we, we have too easy a time labeling each other names in South Africa. I, I also was just sitting back and, cause you know, this radical economic transformation thing is, um, as individuals get put into it. And so we all don't stop to think, is that the bucket of ideas they stand for actually? Because I then sort of like started looking at, okay, what's their ideas? And sort of looked at, found that actually a lot of their ideas resonate with me, right? The issue of land redistribution. I was talking to uh, workers in transit and I said, guys, you know, when you look at uh, South Africa, you may agree that you could afford to, we'd be nice if we paid you more money. But the truth of the matter is in the inequality driver in South Africa is not at the wage rate, actually. We're amongst, on the wage side, we actually are amongst the, the very well distributed because of the strong unions that we have on distribution side. Where we are appalling, it's wealth. 
uh, when you come to the question of wealth. Neither do we have a wealth tax and uh, neither are we doing something about making sure that every single person least owns a house because that's an asset that goes towards the creation of some sort of... So we're not dealing with that question. Now, maybe we could talk nicer, use nicer words with each other, but to deal with that uh, one question. The, the other one that I've been uh, reflecting on is the systems of government that you have because i look at south africa right now i think and i'm I, and i must say i mean I, I hang my head and i've been saying this to people that is a one area that i chide the young portia really badly um as i chide her is this issue of black economic empowerment i genuinely think we went for the wrong model the malaysian model was not the model to have gone for uh in recent years i've spent some time understanding finland and i think if we had gone for that stakeholder capitalism of finland we'd been entirely different uh, space because what did we do we made sure that there'd be a few black people who would protect the privilege and would protect the status quo. Because if you come out with the wealth tax today, who are you going to be taxing? And who do you think puts the first call to the government? Um, I can attest to the fact that as we deal with limited uh, constrained capacity, because very much as there may be massive uh, wealth and you've been the Department uh, of Mineral Resources has brought in a lot more uh, black people into ownership and junior miners and whatever, the cheapest way to move mining commodities is rail. And uh, who has the least access? Black and emerging miners. They actually only have 6% of uh, the capacity. If you were genuinely looking at these issues and you had a political system, so I'm, I'm coming to my, my answer, the Swiss, who have a referendum, 10 referendums a year, 10 referenda a year on anything and everything, uh, which is expensive, I know, but there's a greater sense in which, though, there's very clear directing of what government spends on driven entirely by what people believe is a priority. Somehow we need to find something like that in South Africa because if we do not rest control on what our priorities are from individuals and political parties and processes which are about other contestations which we are not part of, what's the health system like? What money is being spent in education? And the rest are alike, right? Making those kinds of decisions. So it the Swiss model may be the truly most radical because, I mean, I, I, even the Swiss say it's expensive to run a system like that. But I really do think that it's time that we had a bit of a revisit around how we enhance genuinely community participation um, in the actual choices of where money is going. Now, I, I'm a little bit like Derek is that I, I don't know the, whether it's about imagination, but it's the courage to do the thing that must be done, right? I, I, um, I still, I remember very much, uh, being in government and I never forgot this. And maybe we should go back to remind people that when you're in government, you write the law. It's very powerful. We need to remind civil servants and bring back great civil servants who are connected with what are the existential questions of the country, who are of the people, who have political and social consciousness. There's a consciousness about egalitarianism because that's also an issue is that where you start off with and where your mindset is, is going to tell you what it is that you prioritize. You know, elective processes and conferences, I'm now just sit on the side and watch. In any case, as a CEO of a state-owned enterprise, I'm not expected to have opinions about that, am I? I'm assuming that's a rhetorical question. What I'm hearing coming through is the courage and the imagination to think differently um, and to put that forward. Portia, you, you shared a lot of self-reflection, which I think is also a quality that we need collectively to be undertaking and, and honesty there. Political accountability for choices that are made is crucial. And it's interesting that the next election will be fought with the ability of candidates to stand as independents, breaking free from the sort of entrenched resolutions of big party thinking, but also that accountability to your electorate. And I think that's important. 
we are a young democracy and we are learning. The fact that we are open and transparent about our learnings, about the pain and the mistakes that we're making, I think is crucial. And I think we need to be very proud of the fact that we are doing that as long as we use that as an impetus to move forward. Portia, you touched on wealth and the fact that we have still not introduced a wealth tax. I find it really difficult to understand that in a country where the wealth has been accumulated under apartheid in so many ways and allowed to be hidden through so-called legal vehicles, which are, are done nicely, doesn't take away from the morality of the fact that that is a massed wealth taken from the extraction of labor, of minerals, um, and we're not looking at getting that back. And I think that is something which needs to become much more part of our general parlance when it comes to redistributive discussions. But I think just as we head towards the end of this really interesting conversation, we've touched on the political domain and front. I'd like to have you share some ideas about how you think we can go from here? You've both been involved in government, um, but also you're politically aware. From today, here and now, looking at where what where we've come through, the COVID and the attempts to reconstruct and redevelop this economy, um, which have appeared to land us nowhere new. If we want to see an agenda driven, because it's not just up to the three of us, uh, for the kinds of radical change and the extent of the um, boldness of interventions, Derek, what do you, what would you say would be three key steps that we need to see happening or that we need to see happening at a leadership level? So I would encourage South Africans to acknowledge that we're all in the same proverbial boat and that we co-joined in the Republic. And we should care deeply and fundamentally about the other and change our mindset about what constitutes our place in the world, what's real, what's not real. Uh, wealth provided with, without industry uh, is not going to solve our problems. So the first is, a, is a, if you like, a reimagination of self within country. Derived from that is the notion that in a poor and unequal country, as I've said before, every fiscal rand is truly sacred. So spend it wisely and avoid leaky buckets. Consider it a high crime and treasonous against the Republic to either waste or through corruption squirrel away money from the public good. The third is reanimate the public service with civil servants, technocrats, politicians who understand the existential crisis we face and are committed to within a generation reframe the fortunes of the country. And then a fourth. I grew up as a student during the Great Awakening in South Africa, between 90 and 94. It was an absolute generation of ideas at the universities. Um, I used to see folks who then went on to become uh, our, our economic policy-making elites rub shoulders with postgraduates and lecturers. I would hazard to solve this problem, we, I, I would be in favor of us calling a great gathering to debate the issues of the day and try to chart a new economic way forward. So harness our experience that we've gained over the last 25 years that we didn't have in our younger selves, bring all that experience to bear in a new model. So a new model is necessary. Indeed. Portia. So um, I'd be 100% aligned with everything that Derek says. So for additionality, uh, my first is to acknowledge the fact that our three, and I'm ranking them as I see them, our three biggest problems are inequality, unemployment, and growth. And face that and deal with those uh, three issues. Now, to deal with them requires you to really get out of your uh, the current modes. Uh, and it also just requires uh, discipline. 
uh, to to do that which must be done because by and large most answers to these things exist you don't have to really uh, reimagine and think it number two um, investment in infrastructure by government. I keep reminding people this. Um, we were talking about the WTO. The embeddedness of the support that you can be give, able to give to your export sectors and um, in South Africa could be amazing. The German uh, government gives Deutsche Bahn, has been given Deutsche Bahn since 2020 until 2029 or 30. 63 billion euros that goes into the maintenance and expansion and upgrading of the German rail system, which doesn't have our problems of cable theft and everything else. But the point is, the German are putting that into infrastructure. It's not a uh, a subsidy that you can action on under WTO. So it's a little bit more clever. So it's investing in infrastructure, education and health. I think that must be sacred. We do that in social housing. Uh, that num- would be number two. My number three is to look at the sectors that we must directly support. Now, I think uh, with um, the the emergence of decarbonization, electric vehicles and the rest and like, there are many opportunities for us to start looking seriously at how, what do you do with manganese? Manganese is a metal that's required for the new economy. And in fact, we've got a few of those kinds so that we can make sure that the processing happens and what's the support that we need. So it's old R&D, putting proper money into R&D for that. But I think that we actually, two sectors, agriculture has grown phenomenally over the last uh, couple of years in terms of the volumes that it's able to move and the number of people and the jobs that it's created in South Africa. We remain with high value agricultural export, even uh, unprocessed. So that for me would be the other. The third sector that are a, a cluster of sectors, I would focus on it because frankly, we're not going to create jobs at the rate that we'd like to see jobs being created. And the issue is the psychological connectedness of people to the country, to the society, to each other, is to seriously put money into the arts and sport. Um, the arts, the creative, uh, the music, dancing, um, theatre. Because at the end of the day, we all like being entertained. But not only that, there's new streaming and the rest and the like. And we like. So for me, I think we're not paying enough attention to that, even if it's not going to be the kind of jobs that are going to give you lots and lots of money. Most importantly, they keep you psychologically healthy. Because that's, for me, when I look back as an economist, the greatest crime of the economics that they teach us is that economics abstracts away from the fact that the economic agent is a thinking, breathing human being. Thank you. A human being that loves and lives and should be recognized as as being more than just a working unit. We've covered a huge amount today. I just want to go back direct to the point about South Africa being a poor country. So we have poverty, but we're actually a middle-income country, an upper-middle-income country. And I think that's why we're in this this boat uh, that you referred to. And Portia, the, the, the question of growth is so important. It's almost as if we don't have faith in ourselves that we can do it. So if we look at a 6% growth target, what do we need to do to get there? Those are really the questions that you've been asking in terms of identifying the sectors and, and, and focusing on achieving the growth, looking at the steps that we need, that big plan that we require, and then redirecting some of the state investment into those steps to get there. Do you want to have a last bite of the cherry or are we happy to say maybe we can have another discussion on another day? But uh, you see, I was there when 5% growth was a target. I don't think that that's safe anymore uh, because that's what's led to the massive investment and frankly, sometimes the corruption that we see in the big state corruption where we were spending ahead of the curve because you were trying to deal with binding constraints. I no longer buy that argument. Um, I used to. Uh, what I'm now buying is that invest enough to create the potential for growth and then stay alert uh, as growth happens because it will arise. Um, the dangers of thinking that you can forecast today where the world is going to be five, ten years from now are, are very big. But having been there when 5% was the target and all of the kind, I'm not convinced, man. So that will be another discussion. But I I, I think also at the heart of it, it's about recognizing human needs um, and starting small with a big. 
You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.